0: welcome to the age of napoleon episode 22 the man of bronze thanks for joining me we left off last time in the late summer of 1795 napoleon was in paris and in a sense he was in limbo He'd been ordered to take command of an infantry brigade engaged in the counterinsurgency campaign against royalists in western France. Bonaparte wanted no part of this assignment, and he'd spent months in the capital trying to weasel his way out of it. He tried everything he could, twisted every regulation, and leaned on every connection, but ultimately he lost this bureaucratic battle. On September 15, 1795, Napoleon Bonaparte was struck from the list of active-duty generals. The note from the War Ministry reads, quote, given his refusal to go to the post signed to him, end quote. Now, the only thing holding Napoleon to the army was his temporary assignment to the topographical bureau. Napoleon's social life was on the rocks as well, Paris high society was returning to its decadent self after the austere period of Jacobin rule, and Napoleon did not fit in. He was a shabby, awkward young man with little taste for the type of conspicuous luxury and indolence that were coming to dominate the Parisian social scene. Fortunately for his social standing, he was well acquainted with a man who was now at the top of the pyramid, Paul Barra. I've talked a bit about Barra in past episodes, but since then he has become one of the most powerful men in France, and is about to play a big role in our story, so I think he deserves a more thorough introduction. Barra was a member of the Convention, and had been one of the ringleaders of the Thermidorian coup, which positioned him as a leader in the government after Robespierre's fall. Barra had been raised in the type of privilege the young Napoleon had always wished for. The Barra family was not particularly rich, but came from an ancient noble line, and had a long tradition of military service. His uncle had served in the Navy during the American War of Independence and rose to the rank of Rear Admiral. His father had served in the Army and fought against Pauli during the French invasion of Corsica. As a young man, Barra too served as an army officer. He had one ill fated tour of duty in India in which he was nearly killed on several occasions, shipwrecked, and ultimately captured by the British. He was in his mid-thirties when the revolution broke out, but was already in semi-retirement, living off of his pension, a totally obscure figure. I always try to keep my personal feelings out of the show, to present both sides of things and give you guys an objective view of who these people were and what they believed. But when it comes to Paul Barra, I feel like I have to put my cards on the table and admit that I really find him contemptible. A lot of the members of the convention were slippery, amoral characters. You kind of had to be just to survive in that world. Bara makes most of his colleagues look like Abraham Lincoln. He was selfish, nihilistic, dishonest, and completely corrupt. Perhaps at one point in his life, Bara believed in something but by the mid-1790s, he seems to have been committed only to his own power and pleasure. He loved parties, food, drink, and fine clothes, and kept a whole harem of mistresses, and a few boyfriends as well, if rumors are to be believed. Bara lived like a pre-revolutionary aristocrat, all funded by kickbacks and embezzlement. The coup brought him to new heights of power, and soon, anyone hoping to do business with the government was lining up to fill Bara's pockets. His money and power made him one of the leading lights of the opulent new social scene emerging in the capital. Bara wasn't much when it came to policy or legislation, but he was an absolute genius at backroom political maneuvering, trading favors, dispensing bribes and patronage, and marginalizing potential rivals. In many ways, he was emblematic of all the worst aspects of the Thermidorian government. Barra's path first crossed Napoleon's at Toulon in 1793. He had been one of the representatives on mission assigned to the besieging army. Bonaparte formed close partnerships with many of the representatives on mission he served with during this period, even some real friendships. But his relationship with Bara was complicated. Throughout their association, they often worked closely together as allies, but they were always wary of each other, as is often the case with two ambitious people. Napoleon despised corruption and indolence. Barra found the awkward, unsophisticated young Bonaparte tiresome. Despite their differences, their time on campaign together created a political bond. These partnerships between representatives on mission and the generals they served with were a common feature of French politics of this era. They shared equally in the credit for victory and in the blame for defeat, so whether they liked each other or not, there was a strong incentive to work together and watch each other's backs. Barra had an uncanny sense of his own self interest. He instantly recognized Napoleon's ability and ambition, and marked him out as a potential rival. But with that bond of their service together in the South, Barat made the calculation that it was better to keep Napoleon close, and with the Jacobins gone, Napoleon was in the market for new patrons. And so an uneasy alliance was born. Meanwhile, France's government, the Thermidorian Convention, had finally released a draft constitution, known to history as the Constitution of Year Three. For years the country had been without a defined system of government. Ruled by provisional governments under emergency measures. It now seemed that period of instability would soon be over. A national referendum to approve the new constitution was scheduled for the 6th of September, and every indication suggested it would pass. The Thermidorians weren't wildly popular, and their proposed constitution was cumbersome, authoritarian, and undemocratic. However, the people of France were fatigued by the constant political infighting and fed up with civil unrest. Most were willing to forgive the faults of the government and the new constitution in the name of order and continuity. Things were going relatively well for the government, so naturally they decided to shoot themselves in the foot. Just before the referendum, the convention tacked on another proposal known as the Decree of Two-Thirds, It would require that at least two thirds of the members of the new legislature be former members of the Convention. The Constitution already restricted the franchise to under twenty percent of the French population, and if the decree of two thirds was approved, that tiny minority would only be allowed to vote for candidates in one third of the seats in Parliament. So much for democracy. There were a few half decent rationales for such a move. Continuity of government and all that. But most people easily understood its true purpose keeping the resurgent right wing from gaining power. The Jacobins had kept a boot firmly on the neck of French conservatism. But now they were gone, and the persecutions of the Terror were over. The French right was emboldened by the new, more permissive atmosphere after the Thermidorian reaction. They began to come out of the shadows, and they wanted revenge. You may have heard the phrase white terror, which has been used in many historical contexts, from the Russian Civil War to Franco's Spain to nationalist China. It refers to the violent persecution of left wing groups by conservatives or reactionaries. Well, this is when it was coined France in 1794 and 5. Soon after the fall of Robespierre, France was struck by a wave of political murders and impromptu mob violence. Not unlike the Jacobin Terror. But this time the violence was far less organized. The victims were revolutionaries, and the perpetrators were often well to do, former noblemen, and the scions of wealthy bourgeois families. They claimed they were avenging themselves on the people who had persecuted their friends and families during the Terror. In practice, almost anyone who was even suspected of association with the Jacobins might be targeted. Paris was no longer dominated by the sans-culottes. The working class of the capital was a spent force politically. Almost all of their leaders were dead, some at the hands of assassins or the coalition, but most under the guillotine. Many patriotic sans-culottes had died at the front or on the barricades. With the greatest champions of the poor purged from the convention, the government was now absolutely merciless in suppressing working-class protests. After a food riot in early 1795, one of the leading Thermidorian politicians, Jean Lambert Tallien, delivered a speech, The aim of today's violent demonstration was to restore the Jacobins to power. We must destroy all that remains of them. We must have vengeance. We must profit by the inefficiency of these men, who fancy themselves equals of those who overthrew the monarchy, who try to bring about revolutions, but succeed only in provoking riots. We must lose no time in punishing them and putting an end to the revolution." That quotation should give you a sense of the rightward turn in the convention. The government was often aided in suppressing the left by a new force on the streets of Paris groups of loosely organized, politicized street gangs known as the muscadins, after the type of cologne they wore. As you might expect from that name, they were drawn from a wealthier segment of society than the sans-culottes. The muscadins were clerks, shopkeepers, the sons of lawyers or merchants. Much like their high society cousins, the muscadins dressed like dandies, brightly colored tailcoats, Tight pants and extravagant cravats. It might sound kind of comical, but their signature accessory discouraged any laughter a heavy walking stick with a lead weight on the head, perfectly designed to be used as a weapon. The Muscadins were conservatives, but they weren't all monarchists or Catholic traditionalists. They were simply eager to return society to what they saw as the natural order of things men of wealth and privilege running the show, and everyone else knowing their place. They hated the left, who they saw as the primary saboteurs of that order. The only force that could have stood against the Muscadins was the Paris National Guard, but it, too, had become increasingly conservative since the fall of Robespierre. Jacobin officers were replaced, and soldiers from poor backgrounds were dismissed. Recruits now came from the same segment of middle-class, typically right-wing young men that formed the Muscadine Gangs. As we've seen in earlier episodes, the men who controlled the streets of the capital could be a decisive factor in French politics. Whatever faction commanded their loyalty could whip up a mob to defend their interests, put pressure on their opponents, or even overthrow the government entirely. These ascendant conservative forces had initially been strong supporters of the Thermidorians and the new constitution. As we've discussed, the Thermidorians were ideologically flexible pragmatists, not true conservatives. But this alliance made sense. The Thermidorians and the right had a common enemy in the Jacobins. But more importantly, the right was confident that with their power growing and a new constitution that disenfranchised the poor, They would soon be able to take power peacefully. The decree of two thirds shattered these hopes. Under this new law, even if the right swept the elections, they would only control one third of the seats in the new government. If the decree was approved, there could be no constitutional transfer of power to the conservatives. And thus, the alliance between the Thermidorian government and the conservatives was shattered too. Without any hope of taking power legally, many on the right turned their attention to seizing it by force. Despite the falling out with the conservatives, the referendum on the new constitution succeeded easily, with over a million votes in favor and only about 50,000 opposed. However, an ominous number of eligible voters had stayed home. Over four million Frenchmen either made the choice to boycott the election or were too apathetic to take part. The decree of two-thirds was approved as well, but by a much smaller margin—200,000 votes for, 100,000 votes against. Out of 5 million eligible French citizens, only about 200,000 had actually cast a ballot in favor of keeping the Thermidorians in power. The government got what it wanted, but the dismal turnout robbed it of a convincing democratic mandate. Its opponents were emboldened. On September 23, 1795, the final vote totals were certified, and the government declared victory. The new constitution was now in force. I think the drafters of the constitution of year three might not have put enough thought into the transition to the new system. Under the new constitution, France would be ruled by a five-man executive committee known as the Directory, but the Directory had to be chosen by the legislature and the legislature could not be chosen until the people voted for electors. That was scheduled for the end of October and beginning of November. But then it would take time for the electors to meet and select the legislature, and then more time for the legislature to meet and select the directors. That might sound a bit confusing, but the upshot was, France would be in political limbo for several months, ruled by the lame-duck convention. Such a long period of weak, uncertain central authority could be dangerous for a country at war with half the continent and beset by internal enemies. This moment of vulnerability would turn out to be very poorly timed. In late September, a royalist rebellion broke out in Dreux, only about 80 kilometers or 50 miles from Paris. Further west, the Vendée erupted again. The British Navy landed a small army of emigre French troops, backed up by redcoats. Among them was the Count of Artois, brother of the executed King Louis XVI and one of the leaders of the emigre movement. It had been years since such a high ranking nobleman set foot on French soil. This was a serious situation, but the Republic was probably not in mortal danger. The rebellion at Dreux was quickly contained by government forces. Artois only had a few thousand men. General Lazar-Oche's much larger Republican army stood between the Émigrés and Paris. But, as is often the case, the rumor mill inflated these threats. With the more conservative mood in the country, the white terror raging, and the government looking weak, it didn't seem so far-fetched to think the Republic might be on its last legs. In the past, the people of Paris had risen up to defend the revolution when it was faced with these types of threats. But remember, the Paris of late 1795 was a very different place from what it had been at the height of revolutionary fervor only a few years before. The Muscadin gangs, who now ruled the streets, wouldn't dream of sticking their necks out to defend the revolution. Indeed, they were eager to welcome the Count of Artois and restore the monarchy. Almost as soon as the results of the referendum were announced, public disturbances and anti-government protests began in the Le Pelletier neighborhood of Paris, a middle-class area near the center of the city. Le Pelletier was a conservative stronghold, and considered the heartland of the Muscatins. Ominously for the government, Le Pelletier was also about a 20-minute stroll from the Tuileries Palace, where the convention met. These disturbances only grew with time. By the end of September, right wing militants were trading musket fire with government patrols through their neighborhoods. Emigre noblemen and royalist rebel leaders from the Vendee infiltrated the city to organize and sow dissent. Rumors of a full on right wing uprising in Paris began to circulate. The logical response for the government would be to call out the National Guard. But now that the Guard was purged of Jacobins and sans it was probably more likely to join such an uprising than suppress it. The Thermidorians began to realize they had made a grave error. They had underestimated right-wing anger at the Two-Thirds Decree and the right's willingness and ability to resist it with force. The government had relied on conservatives to aid it in suppressing the left, Now that the right had turned on it, the convention was dangerously isolated, without allies, surrounded in a hostile city. The armies of the Republic were loyal, but they were all at the front, days or even weeks march away. The situation in Paris was sliding further out of control by the hour, even a few days might be too late. The Convention scraped together what regular army forces they could from around the capital, mostly units that were being transferred from the Rhineland to the Vendée. But this amounted to only a few thousand men, not nearly enough to hold off an uprising supported by the Paris National Guard, who numbered in the tens of thousands. To make up the difference, the Convention had the gall to seek out allies on the left, backtracking entirely on months of violent repression. Any former officer in the city who had been dismissed from the army as a Jacobin sympathizer was offered his commission back. Over a thousand men who had been drummed out of the Paris National Guard on grounds of poverty assembled at the Tuileries to offer their services. The convention eagerly accepted, christening them the Sacred Battalion. Conservatives nicknamed them the Terrorist Battalion, in reference to the Jacobin Terror. Government representatives went out into the working-class neighborhoods of Paris, preaching that old radical rhetoric of 1793, seeking out veterans, policemen, former gendarmes, anyone among the sans-culottes who knew how to handle a weapon. They were lucky that the masses of Paris hated the royalists even more than the government. Hundreds answered the call. On the 4th of October, the conflict everyone in the city knew was coming finally began. Several conservative sections of Paris declared themselves in rebellion against the convention and called out their local National Guard companies to oppose the convention by force. The rebel National Guard companies were joined by muscadins and other armed royalist sympathizers, forming a kind of impromptu army that may have grown as large as 35,000 men. The government assembled some of its meager forces under General Jacques-François Manu and ordered them to go to the La neighborhood and confront the rebels. Manu must have been conscious of the small size of his command and the weakness of the government's position, because he advanced very cautiously and attempted to negotiate with the rebels. The insurgents refused to hand over their weapons, but promised to disperse if Manu and his men pulled out of La Manu held up his end of the bargain, but the royalists did not. Now unopposed by republican forces, the rebels headed toward the Tuileries. By now it was late in the evening, and a heavy rain had begun to fall. The royalists had no desire to launch their climactic confrontation with the government in the dark and wet, so they stopped for the night and made camp in the Church of Saint-Roch, only a few blocks from the convention. Saint-Roch is the resting place of Denis Diderot, an avowed atheist and a leading light of the French Enlightenment, who must have been rolling over in his grave. While the insurgents rested, the government was in a frenzy. The Convention had been in permanent session since the beginning of the crisis, its members grabbing a few hours' sleep in remote hallways or unused offices in between marathon sessions organizing a defense. As luck would have it, Napoleon was already at the Tuileries when these events kicked off. The Tuileries was a huge complex, and it hosted all kinds of institutions, including the Fado Theater, where Bonaparte happened to be watching a play. Whispers began to filter through the audience that something big was happening out in the streets, so Napoleon slipped out and walked over to the convention to see what was going on. Maybe he wanted to take a crack at these dandified royalists, who he despised. Maybe he was hoping to ingratiate himself with the government by offering his services in a crisis. Or maybe he was simply a spectator. Eighteenth-century people couldn't follow the news from home on CNN. If you wanted to know what was going on during a national emergency, you had to go to the source, and many Parisians did. That night, General Manu was removed from command. His conciliatory approach had failed, and made him and the government look weak. He was also a former baron, which made some in the convention question his loyalty to the cause. In Manu's place, they appointed a man whose commitment to the government was beyond question, because he was one of its most prominent members, Paul Barra. Barra did have a military background, but it had been nearly 20 years since he actually wore the uniform. He would need help from a real soldier, particularly when it came to actually commanding men in combat. Bara recognized Napoleon watching in the galleries, and sent an assistant to arrange a meeting. As the traditional story goes, once the two men were face-to-face, Bara asked him, Will you serve under me? You have three minutes to decide. To which Bonaparte replied immediately, Yes. Where are the cannon? That's a very dramatic scene, but it may be fiction. For one thing, it may have been Napoleon who reached out to Barra rather than vice versa. Some accounts say it was several hours before the government announced Napoleon's appointment as Barra's chief of staff. This would suggest that Napoleon's response was not that immediate yes, but what's in it for me, and the two men then negotiated over his reward before he agreed. Whatever the case, it was after midnight when Napoleon's appointment was made official. The new day was sure to be a momentous one in French history, October 5th, 1795, or the 13th of the month of Vendémire, year 4, according to the Republican calendar. Napoleon and Barras stayed up all night planning the defense of the convention. The situation was dire enough that 800 muskets were placed in an office in the Tuileries, in case the delegates themselves would be called upon to make a last-ditch defense of the convention. In total, the government had about 8,000 men at its disposal, 5,000 seasoned regulars, and 3,000 militia of less certain quality. It's nearly impossible to say how many rebels opposed them, but we do know the Republicans were massively outnumbered, 6 to 1 by one estimate. However, numbers can be deceiving. The Royalist forces were of much lower quality. Some were just armed civilians, whose only combat experience came from riots and street brawls. Most of the insurgent troops were probably National Guardsmen, but these were part-time soldiers, many of whom were new recruits, and almost none of them had seen combat. Barra and Napoleon had a big advantage in experience and professionalism. Napoleon's first question to Barra, where are the cannon, would turn out to be an important one. When Barra took command, the forces of the convention had only two light cannon. Napoleon instantly recognized this would not do. He had seen the powerful effect artillery fire had on inexperienced, undisciplined troops. It could cause devastating casualties, but it also had a powerful psychological impact, particularly grape shot. The shotgun like ammunition that 18th century gunners used against infantry at close range. Being on the receiving end of a grapeshot volley was a terrifying experience. The soldier might be temporarily deafened by the sound and blinded by the smoke, but not before seeing dozens of his comrades cut down in an instant, seemingly at random. It was often enough to make even veteran soldiers break and run. Against a poorly trained mass of part-time National Guardsmen and armed civilians, that psychological impact would be magnified. Napoleon was informed that the nearest cache of artillery was at Sablon, just outside the city. Sablon was closer to the rebels than it was to the Republican forces. The convention's chances of survival would be very much reduced if they were outgunned as well as outnumbered. Napoleon needed to secure those cannon before the rebels. To that end, he immediately tracked down a squadron of light cavalry. Their commander was Major Joachim Murat, a young cavalry officer straight out of central casting. Murat was a handsome, fast-living womanizer who would soon gain a reputation as one of the bravest men in the army. And, as many enemy cavalrymen and jealous husbands would soon discover, he was also one of the finest swordsmen on the continent. As soon as they were introduced, Napoleon began barking orders. Go immediately to Sablon. Bring the 40 cannon and artillery equipment. Let them be there. Use the sword if necessary, but bring them. You will answer to me. Go. End quote. Far from being offended, Murat immediately grasped the urgency of the order, and he and his men tore off at a gallop. Napoleon didn't know it, but the rebels had already dispatched men to Sablon to seize the guns. But Murat and his men managed to beat them there. They spent the wee hours of the morning in a hair raising game of hide and seek, dodging roving bands of insurgents to get the cannon to the Tuileries. By dawn, Napoleon had his artillery and the convention now had a huge advantage in the confrontation to come. Murat's gallop to Sablon had completely changed the balance of power within the city. Napoleon was a hard man to impress, but this dramatic incident did the trick. Thirteen Vendemires marked the beginning of a partnership between Bonaparte and Murat that would last decades and shape the course of history. Napoleon placed the artillery at key strategic points around the Tuileries. Just like at Toulon, Napoleon picked each position personally, and sighted the guns himself. The main part of his force was arranged at the intersection of the Rue Saint-Roch, the street on which the rebels were camped, and the Rue Saint-Honoré, the main avenue leading towards the Tuileries. If the insurgents attempted an attack on the Convention by the most direct route, they would turn at this intersection, which is where Napoleon planned to hold them. He kept a reserve further down the Rue Saint-Roch, which could then hit the rebels on their flank. There were similar defensive positions at other key strategic points around the Tuileries, but this was where Napoleon believed the main attack would come. He took personal command of this detachment. At around four in the morning, the rebels issued a set of demands essentially total surrender and the repeal of the new constitution. These were obviously rejected, and in response they launched a few raids, one of which reached all the way to the steps of the Tuileries. But with so many civilians in their ranks, it was impossible to launch a serious assault in the dark. The main event wouldn't come until after sunrise. When dawn broke on October 5th, 1795, the Republicans were ready. The President of the Convention, sort of the equivalent of an American Speaker of the House, addressed the troops defending the convention: quote, "Let us receive death with the audacity that belongs to friends of liberty." End quote." That wasn't just your typical politician's hot air. The delegates really did stand a chance of being killed if the day's battle didn't go their way." The Friends of Liberty braced themselves for the coming assault. But nothing happened. The rebels were close by, just down the street, but neither side had orders to attack. As the hours ticked by, a cold drizzle began to fall. As they stood waiting, I'm sure many of the Republicans began to regret staying up all night to prepare for an enemy that would not come. It must have been surreal to experience this lull in the action after a day and night of frantic activity. Finally, around noon, the insurgents began to stir. The long silence of the morning was broken by the drummers of the rebel National Guard companies. They were forming up for an attack.
2: History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries And the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty, to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of Grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Gray History: The French Revolution Today. Or simply search for The French Revolution.
0: Just as Napoleon predicted, they came down the most direct route to the Tuileries, right into his trap on the Rue Saint-Honoré. As they approached the republican line, the insurgents fired a volley, and for a moment it seemed like they might have the momentum to push through. But it was only a moment. Bonaparte's men returned fire with a volley of their own, and with two heavy eight-pound cannon loaded with grapeshot. Dozens of insurgents were mowed down in an instant. The remains of the assault column faltered, then stopped. To their credit, the royalists did not run. They were too shaken to continue the advance into the mouths of those cannon, But they did reload and hold their ground. It was a fierce firefight, but it was now clear who had the advantage. Napoleon had a close call when his horse was shot out from under him, but was unharmed. With the rebel column pinned down, Bonaparte called in the reserve nearly a thousand more men, plus six more cannon. The insurgents came under fire from a second direction, and without artillery of their own, they were massively outgunned things got bloody. The Republicans had entered the battle short on ammunition, and after over an hour of firing, their supplies were dangerously depleted. Napoleon decided it was time to force the engagement to an end. He ordered the reserve to charge, led by Murat's cavalry. Again, you have to give credit to the royalists for bravery. They stood their ground and engaged the Republicans in hand-to-hand combat. But they were too weakened from the firefight to offer serious resistance. After a few minutes of pitched battle, the rebels broke and fled. With their main attack defeated, the rebels attempted smaller assaults along other parts of the line, but all of these were repelled easily. They lost most of their best men, and by now it was late in the afternoon, too close to sunset to organize another major maneuver before dark. The defeat at the Rue Saint-Roch had knocked all the air out of the rebellion. The insurgents had pinned all their hopes on overwhelming the convention with pure speed and momentum. Once the sun set on the 13th of Vendémire, with the convention still standing, any chance of that happening was gone. Men began deserting the rebel cause almost immediately, hoping to avoid being caught on the wrong side. Meanwhile, Republican reinforcements streamed into the city by the hour. The uprising all but vanished overnight, literally. The government and the new constitution had been saved. Napoleon Bonaparte had started the day as a lowly army cartographer. His exploits at Toulon were old news, and he'd even lost his brigadier-general's rank. But by nightfall, he was the hero of the hour. On paper, Barra had been in command. But it was Napoleon who everyone had seen actually galloping around the Tuileries organizing the defense, and Napoleon who had been in personal command during the decisive engagement, so he got all the credit. The conservatives had lost the battle on the ground, but they resolved to win a consolation victory in the press. Right wing pamphlets depicted the events of 13 Vendemire as a mass slaughter of peaceful protesters a cruel act of tyranny, rather than a hard-fought resistance against an attempted coup. Most of the insurgents were uniformed National Guardsmen, and the civilians who participated were more of a volunteer militia than a protest movement. They'd managed to kill almost a hundred Republican troops. But no one outside of Paris knew that. And so, the right-wing press tried to twist facts and create a public scandal to discredit the government. They made Napoleon the chief villain of this narrative, a callous Corsican mercenary who fired grapeshot into a peaceful unarmed assembly that included women and children, and all to protect his corrupt paymasters in the convention. Conservatives nicknamed this caricatured Napoleon General Vendemier. Bonaparte didn't mind. This was his first taste of the national spotlight, and he loved the attention. Republicans were celebrating Thirteen Vendemiers as the salvation of liberty, so from Napoleon's perspective, the stronger he was associated with it, the better. As he himself put it, quote, I value the title of General Vendemier. In the future, it will be my first title of glory. End quote. Obviously a little bit of sarcasm there, but he immediately understood that in doing this service for the government and winning himself a little public acclaim, he had saved his career from the doldrums and written himself a ticket to future promotion and success. Napoleon may have been happy to call himself General Vendemiere, but that conservative narrative of a massacre has been surprisingly resilient. Even in modern depictions of the events of 13 Vendemiere, you still sometimes see the insurgents depicted as an unarmed mob, rather than a military formation, largely composed of national guardsmen. These incorrect depictions are particularly common in the English-speaking world. That's because some of the most famous lines of nonfiction in the English language were written about the events of 13 Vendémiaire by the Scottish author Thomas Carlyle, who largely adopted that inaccurate narrative crafted by royalists in the wake of the uprising. In 1837, Carlyle published The French Revolution, A History which, even today, is probably the most culturally significant English-language book ever written on the topic, and the passage about Thirteen Vendemiers is one of the most famous in the book. I'm of two minds about Carlyle. On one hand, he was an absolutely brilliant writer. There's at least one memorable turn of phrase on almost every page. His passion, both for history and for storytelling, shine through and have inspired generations of writers and historians. However, he is also woefully inaccurate, both in specifics and in general tone. His crank ideas and ultra-reactionary views shine through his work just as clearly as his passion for his subjects. And his work is simply outdated. History has come a long way as a scholarly discipline since 1837. Today we have better information, and more effective ways of interpreting it. Despite his shortcomings, I couldn't bring myself to do an episode about 13 Vendémiaire without Carlyle's famous whiff of grapeshot, so I'm going to read a selection from Book 3, Chapter 7 of The French Revolution A History. This is a bit longer than our typical quotations. But there's no new information, so just sit back and enjoy the prose. And enjoy feeling like you're smarter than Carlyle, because hopefully you now can pick out a bunch of his errors. I've edited this down a little bit for length and to make some of the terms Carlyle uses fit with the ones we've introduced on the show. Anyway, without further ado, quote Some call for Barra to be made Commandant. He conquered in Thermidor. Some, what is more to the purpose, bethink them of Citizen Bonaparte, unemployed artillery officer who took too long. A man of head, a man of action. Barra is named Commandant's Cloak. His young artillery officer is named Commandant. He was in the gallery at the moment and heard it. He withdrew some half hour to consider with himself. After half an hour of grim, compressed considering, to be or not to be, he answers, yea. And now, a man of head being at the center of it, the whole matter gets vital. Swift, to the camp of Sablon, to secure the artillery. There are not twenty men guarding it. A swift adjutant, Murat is the name of him, gallops. Gets thither in some minutes within time, for Le Pelletier was also on the march that way. The cannon are ours, and now beset this post, beset that, rapid and firm, rank around the sanctuary of the Tuileries, a ring of steel discipline. Let every gunner have his match burning, and all men stand to their arms. Thus there is permanent session through the night, and thus, at sunrise of the morrow, there is seen sacred insurrection once again. The vessel of state laboring on the bar, and tumultuous sea all around her. It is an imminence of shipwreck for the whole world to gaze at. Frightfully she labors, that poor ship, within cable length of port, huge peril for her. However, she has a man at the helm. Insurgent messages, received and not received. Messenger admitted blindfolded. Counsel and counter-counsel. The poor ship labors. Steady. The artillery officer is steady as bronze, can be quick as lightning. He sends 800 muskets with ball cartridges to the convention itself. Honorable members shall act with these in case of extremity, whereat they look grave enough. Four of the afternoon is struck. Le Peltier bursts out along the southern quai Voltaire, along streets and passages, treble quick in huge, veritable onslaught. Whereupon, thou bronze artillery officer? Fire, say the bronze lips. Roar and again roar, continual, volcano-like, goes his great gun in the Col de Sac Tauphin, against the church of Saint-Roch. Go his great guns on the Pont Royal. Go all his great guns. Blow to air some two hundred men mainly about the Church of Saint-Roch. Le Pelletier cannot stand such horseplay. No insurgent can stand it. The forty thousand yield on all sides, scour towards covert. The ship is over the bar, then, free, she bounds shoreward, amid shouting and vivats. Quelled sections have to disarm in such humor as they may. Sacred right of insurrection is gone forever. The new constitution can disembark itself and begin marching. The miraculous convention ship has got to land, and is there, shall we figuratively say, changed, as epic ships are wont, into a kind of sea nymph, never to sail more, to roam the waste azure, a miracle in history. It is false, says Napoleon, that we fired first with blank charge. It had been a waste of life to do that. Most false. The firing was with sharp and sharpest shot. To all men it was plain that here was no sport. The rabbits and plinths of San Rock Church now splintered by it to this hour. Six years ago this whiff of grape shot was promised, but it could not be given then, could not have prospered then. Now, however, the time is come for it, and the man, and behold you have it. And the thing that we specifically call French Revolution is blown into space by it, and become a thing that was. End quote. And that's how Carlyle ends the narrative. For him, that volley of grape shot represented the end of the French Revolution. Even after reading that passage a million times, I still find it powerful. I can easily see how writing like that would stick in our collective consciousness for over a century and a half. Just What a shame that it's so full of inaccuracies. Anyway, we've now gone way over our normal time, so I'll cut things off here. Next time, we'll see Napoleon cash in on the goodwill he won on 13 Vendemier. Barra and the government owed him a huge debt of gratitude, and he made him pay for it, right down to the last cent. Until then, thanks for listening.
1: Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com.
2: It's my little escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
2: Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs)